Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Janelle Brown is the New York Times bestselling author of the novels I'll Be You, Pretty Things, Watch Me Disappear, All We Ever Wanted Was Everything, and This Is Where We Live. Both Pretty Things, which was named a Best Book of 2020 by Amazon, and I'll Be You are both currently being adapted for television. Janelle was on the show with Barbara back in 2017 with Watch Me Disappear. That interview can be found in our archives. She joins me today to talk about I'll Be You, how using identical twins gave her a new way to explore identity and writing dual points of view, how to create empathetic characters who make dreadful decisions, the role of place in fiction, and much, much more for both readers and writers. Before I bring her on, a quick reminder to visit our Patreon page. We're offering some special tips and perks to our patrons. You will get access to who is coming up next on the show. You have the opportunity to lob in some questions to us. If you're so inclined, we give you writing tips. We give you writing exercises. Hopefully the show's boosted your writing in some way and given you some useful advice. So look for us there. You can see all those benefits by visiting patreon.com slash writers on writing. We also invite you to leave a review of the show on Apple, Amazon, wherever, however you consume your podcasts. Those reviews help bring new listeners to the show and that helps us too. Okay, enough with the housekeeping on with the show. Janelle, welcome back. Thank you. It's so nice to be back. Hey, congratulations on everything that's happened since we last spoke in 2018 because we used to do these literary orange fiction panels together. And I, I'm afraid literary orange is now defunct. I think they they've so stopped many, since the pandemic. So many literary festivals have have fizzled since the pandemic, which is which is really sad. <laughs> so. I know, I know, but I'm glad we're back together again. But yeah, a lot has happened to you in those intervening years. So hopefully we get to we get to talk to, about all of that, these two books heading to screen. But before we dive into I'll Be You, I wanted to just kind of spend the first few minutes kind of walking across the the sort of stepping stones of your career for just a moment. Because you began in journalism before switching to fiction. You worked as a senior writer at Salon and began your career as a staff writer at Wired back in the 90s. And I assume some of those roots in journalism serve the fiction well. I can see some ripple effects of all that research going into all of your novels. But I, I just wanted to kind of start there and talk about how journalism may have served you as a fiction writer, and maybe even if there are things that you had to unlearn about journalism for your fiction. Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And and I do feel like being a journalist, especially being a journalist in those kind of crazy years in the early dot-com years, working for these kind of experimental new online news organizations was like boot camp for me for writing. I had to produce so much writing and learn about the economy of storytelling, how to keep people's interest uh, in, in weaving together a narrative, how to evoke character in you know, in very little space, <laughs> you know, you're introducing people, you're introducing ideas. And it's it's a real challenge to keep people reading to the end of a of a nonfiction story, right? A, a news story, a narrative journalism story. And you have to think really creatively about how you can keep people wanting to read more. And so I think that served me really well when it came to 
thinking about storytelling in longer form and how you need turns, how you need anticipation, how you need to, to leave questions at the beginning that you don't answer until the very end, but leave clues to along the way so that people are like, huh, wait, how do I, what's going to happen? Um, how is this going to resolve? So those things are really interesting for me. And also just learning about, you know, the economy of writing a, a sentence um, and having to be clear and instructive. And so those are all really great things to learn. You know, the the reason I always wanted to write novels, right? I, I always wanted to write fiction since I was a kid. That was my, that was my end goal. But there was certainly a moment um, when I was, you know, having a very successful career as a journalist where I was like, well, I could follow this trajectory if I wanted and make that my career instead. And and never write fiction. But the but the truth of the matter was is as much as I enjoyed the journalism, I kept looking at the truth and thinking, God, it'd be so much nicer if I could just add this fact in here and have this character do this. It would make a better story. I wanted to make <laughs> things up. You know, I wanted to improve the story. And of course, you're not supposed to do that when you're a journalist. So writing, moving to fiction was really freeing in the sense that I could make it all up. I could invent anything. I could make the story as good as I wanted it to be without having to uh, break journalistic convention and become uh, a liar. <laughs> that makes right, sense. right. Was it hard to switch from the, you know, like the mental landscape of a journal story is like a thousand words at the most, right? Sometimes shorter than that. And then to the the big canvas of a novel, which is, you know, 80,000 words. Was that hard? Because I only asked this because once upon a time I was a, a lawyer and you, I, there was so much I had to unlearn about writing to become any good at fiction at all. Um, yes and no. I mean, certainly... I, I was lucky enough to do longer form pieces, like 5,000 word pieces for Salon and for some news, for some magazines that I wrote for. So I, I did have some experience in thinking a little longer. But yeah, you're right. It's different than writing. And you know, my books are actually more like 100,000 to 120,000. Yeah, right, right. So I guess, you know, I guess there were things to unlearn, but I think what I really enjoyed was just the sense of freedom. Like you can, you can take as much space as you want. So it was less for me about unlearning than it was about realizing I could take advantage of all this space and freedom. But yeah, there definitely was, was learning about how to spool things out in a slower way than you do it in a journalism piece. Yeah. So. Yeah. Did you ever toy with the idea of an MFA or was that off the table all the way along? You know, I thought about it in college, but I wanted to work. I wanted to get a job. And so I went into journalism. And then by the time I had spent all these years in journalism, you know, I kind of felt like I thought about it and then decided to start writing and taking some classes. And then I sold my first book kind of without it. And then it just never really, it never really came up that I should do it. I mean, there's moments where I certainly regret that I never got an MFA. I, I think the freedom of of having like a couple of years to just write <laughs> sounds <laughs> lovely. And those certainly those early years when I was like trying to write a book and make a living doing other things at the same time, you know, those were those were stressful. And uh, it would have been a lot of fun to write my first book in an MFA program. But I that said, I've also heard from people who've gotten MFAs and that it's not 
always exactly what you want it to be. And sometimes it's very, it, it gives you, uh, you write what your, what your professors want you to write in a way, instead right. of writing the freedom of what you want to write without anyone telling you what to do. So, so I don't know, would I have written my, my first novels the same way if I'd gotten an MFA? Probably not. And, and so in that sense, I don't necessarily regret not getting an MFA. Yeah. And I also feel like if you're not going to teach, maybe it's not all that necessary. And look at all the money yeah. you saved, really. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. So those early books of yours, the first two, All We Ever Wanted Was Everything and This Is Where We Live, really felt to me much more kind of domestic-y, literary kind of fiction. And then there was this wonderful turn that you took in Watch Me Disappear when we started talking on the panels. I think we were on a panel once before that for one of the earlier books, but this wonderful kind of turn into suspense, noir. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about jumping genres. And that's kind of where you've stayed since then and how agents and publishers feel about that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny because, uh, yeah, my first two novels were what my agent called Franzen-esque. Um, So they had this kind of like, like slightly satirical domestic drama, the heightened heightened relationships, like these car crash, kind of car crash domestic relationships, right? Where you watch the slow build of, oh God, this is all falling apart kind of thing. Yes. Um, and when I started my third novel, Watch Me Disappear, I actually was thinking I was doing the same thing. I was writing a story about a husband and wife, a husband and wife and a daughter, daughter mother, and the mother had disappeared. And it was about the relationship between the father and the daughter and the relationship with the mother. And it really wasn't until I got halfway through the book that I realized that I had written this mystery into the novel. Like the mother has disappeared. She went hiking. She never came back. Is she alive or is she dead? And even though the book itself is, is again, all about relationships and characters and, and, you know, their emotional lives, there was this suspense spine to it, this mystery built in. And I, and my editor was the one who pointed it out to me and said, keep doing this. This is great. We love mystery suspense. They sell well. And so I finished this book and it was marketed as, as literary suspense and it did really, really well. And so they're like, great, can you do that again? <laughs> and so, you know, and so in that, you know, it's funny because I my new, my last couple of books have been have been categorized as suspense, in part because I think, yes, marketing likes those books. They sell well. Um, if you look at the books on the bestseller list, a lot of them are suspense and mysteries. That said, my books are sometimes not quite properly categorized that way because there's they're they cross genre a lot. Like they are still literary domestic dramas, <laughs> yeah. but they also, but they have this, this plot spine to them. Um, so that hasn't really changed. It's, um, you know, my, my first two books were also very plot oriented, very like twisty, a lot of like, a lot of like revelations and things like, oh my God, I can't believe that's happening. They're very propulsive. They just happen to have different kind of propulsive spines than the ones with the, the more genre spine now. So, you know, it's interesting. I, I definitely get readers who pick up my books and they're like, well, this was really slow paced and there was too much character building because they're expecting like <laughs> you know, a really suspensey suspense book. And I'm writing books that kind of cross, cross literary fiction and suspense fiction. And, and, and so they, I, I kind of just write, I write for me, I write what I like to read. And sometimes that's hard to define. Yeah. And your voice is so strong throughout across all the books. I just feel like I can pick up a book and that's Janelle. 
that it sounds like you all the way through. So, which is great. I mean, obviously, each one of them have their own distinct voice and and world, but that is a unifying theme. That you know, once you fall in love with your writing, you're just going to stay stay in love with it. That's, That's great. great. Yeah, I mean, my goal is really to to never write the same book twice. Like, I don't want the books to feel too similar to each other, but I want the most to be identifiable as a book that Janelle Brown wrote. I don't think you have to worry about the former. I think you're on safe ground. None of these sound at all alike. Yeah. So let's introduce I'll Be You. Maybe you can give us uh, sort of your your elevator pitch for it and kind of lay the groundwork for these two sisters. And then we can dive into talking about them. Sure. So I'll Be You is the story of twin sisters, identical twins, um, Ellie and Sam, who grew up as child stars, um, actresses in like, you know, they were kind of like B, B, C list actresses, much like the Olsen twins um, and had really successful careers up through high school. And then one sister decided she wouldn't do it anymore. The other sister became an alcoholic, a drug, had all kinds of addiction issues and their careers fell apart, right? 10 years later, they have become estranged and the Sam, the, um, the, the recovering addict sister is summoned home because her other sister, Ellie, who, the one who quit acting and wanted to have a very normal life and has since become a, a kind of homemaker and a florist has gone to a retreat, a a self-help retreat, right? Women's uh, spa kind of thing and, and, and not come back and left her newly adopted um, toddler behind. And so Sam is summoned home to take care of her sister's daughter, who she didn't even know existed until now, and realizes very quickly when she gets home that her sister has gotten involved in a group that is very, very questionable. And so the story really becomes about her trying to piece together what her sister has gotten herself into, navigating her own relationship with her sister and her parents and this like new niece of hers and then ultimately trying to connect with with her missing sister it strikes me as a really fun way to talk about identity as you were saying earlier all of your novels really revolve around character and characters are what propel the action and i think it's i i can't remember reading another novel about identical twins and told from the I, i'm sure there are but i think it's a really fun way to explore identity and to explore voice and it, trying to make these characters very distinct from each other who are very you know who start out identical and so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that about you know taking two people who are so closely bound at the beginning and then spinning them out into really very individualistic personalities, finding the voice for each one. I'll say here that, and I bring this up on the show quite a bit, that Meryl Streep, I think it was Meryl Streep, once said that she had to know a secret about every one of the characters she played in order to unlock them that the audience would never know. Mm-hmm. And I, then I always think about that with writers, about what it was about a character. You can't do that really in fiction because the whole point is access to their interior. But but what it was about these two individuals when you're like, ah, that makes you you and that makes that makes Sam Sam and that makes Ellie Ellie, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, for me, and I think this is an exercise I do with all of my characters. And in a way, it's, you know, it's writing one-on-one. It's like, what what is it that they're missing? What is it that's driving them? What is it that they want? And what is the what is 
what is their big life issue that is holding them back from that, right? So it's like, I find myself, and and I do this a lot in my books, is kind of winding back to childhood and like what happened then that sent them on this trajectory of their life that has sent them to make this terrible decision. It's usually a terrible decision in my book. <laughs> my books are like, <laughs> yes, oh, yes. What, yeah. what has brought them to this moment where they're about to make this decision and, and why are they going to make this decision, even though it's a bad decision? Um, and so for me, like, I love kind of spooling back my characters and being like, oh, okay, this thing happened when they were 16 years old. Their mom said this, their sister did that. And that's led to all these longings and desires that they have now. Um, and sometimes it's not all the way back to childhood. Sometimes it's, you know, 10 years ago or what ha- what have you. So once I can kind of pinpoint that longing, that desire, that need in my character, that's how I then get into them. I'm like, oh, okay, I see what this person's big issue is. And now I get to play with it. <laughs> yes, yes. I've been talking to writers lately about this kind of quiet period that they have before they start writing this. I mean, some writers give themselves a year or two. Somebody Mm -hmm. gave themselves two decades, but that seems long. But I assume there's some quiet period where you're working all of this out, where you're like, what happened to you and what happened to you before you start writing? And I was wondering if we could kind of unpack what that looks like. Like one person told me she just puts everything in Scribner. She's got all these research notes and tabs and pictures of what our character might look like. So tell me about that period where you're exploring them. And is it done through scene writing or slapping things into post-it notes to tell you (laughs) like this happened in childhood or timelines or talk a little bit about that understanding who these two women are and what makes them tick and and kind of what that looks like for you? Yeah. You know, it's funny because each book has been a little different in the way that I've come to it. But I will say I am not a big note taker. I'm not a big like post-its person. I tend to work it out on the page. So I will, my my general process is, okay, I've got this book idea. It comes to me. I'm like, great. I scribble down a really rough outline. Then I spend some time thinking about character and voice. And that's the next thing. And sometimes, and I'll maybe we'll try like writing some pages and a voice and I'll feel totally wrong. I have no idea who this person is. I don't know what, what compels them. So that's when I start taking walks or drives. Long drives um, are great, like a, a nice road trip where I don't have to talk to anyone for four and a half hours. And all I do is just think about the book and think about the character and you know, then get to the other end and scribble a bunch of stuff down <laughs> and then try writing that person's voice. And, I, and I'll do that over and over again until I finally feel like I've nailed the voice or at least have enough of a way in to, to be able to keep writing in, in that voice. And then the rest of it just kind of comes while I'm writing. I'm like, I'll be like, I'll start writing and I'll be writing along. I'll think, God, what has brought this person here to this moment? And they're like, I'm going to write a scene when they're in high school. And we try that. So yeah, I I do a lot of like stabbing in the dark um, as I'm writing, as opposed to like planning and, and outlining and writing character bios. Often what will happen though, is I will get enough into the book that I, you know, I have like you know, 50,000 words, I'm halfway through the book, what have you. And I realize I need to know a little bit more about the character. And that's when I'll sit down and I'll kind of like sketch out a little bit more of a clear bio or, or try to write 
write some interior monologues that I'm not planning to put into the book, but like them thinking about, you know, for example, the book I'm working on right now, she's got, it's all about this girl's relationship with her father. And so I'm, I'm kind of thinking about how does she think about her father? So the other day I sat down and I wrote a whole kind of like thought dump of her just thinking about her dad and, 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 you know, how similar she is to him and how her concerns about being too similar to him. And it's not going to go in the book, (laughs) but it helped me to just kind of work out what her feelings were about him um, and, and their relationship. So, so that kind of thing helps me. Yeah, and it strikes me in this book. So the thing that really unlocked Sam for me is her addiction issues. And once you understand you're addicted to all sorts of things, that really starts propelling some very bad decision making. (laughs) And it's a it's kind of both a blessing and a curse to work with an addict, I would think, because, you know, they can do anything because they're 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 a little insane, right? I mean, (laughs) but also they could do anything. So tell me a little bit about working working with an addict because they're, I mean, she's a recovering addict mostly in the book, but it it allows you to do some really fun, fun is in quotes here, fun things with her character, (laughs) but it's a certain psychology, right? I mean, addiction is really, it goes all, you know, it's kind of turtles all the way down of trying to understand an addict's mind. Tell me a little bit about working with her and that aspect of her personality and how tricky that was. I have to say I had a blast writing her because you know, the, the thing about a recovering addict that I found so compelling to write is that they're so full of hope and intention, right? They are, you have recovered, you have worked really hard to do this thing and you know what it means to have personal goals. You know what it means to, to, to see the person that you want to be, right? And to know that you want to be a sober person, you want to be a good sister, you want to do you know, be a good daughter, you want to have good relationships. And you know that the only person standing in the way of that is you. And so you do all this work to get to this point and have your tokens that show you've been sober for a year and all this kind of moment of pride. And that's a really fun thing to work for, especially when it's also uh, like cut into as a writer with all these bad decisions that they also get to make because recovering addicts fall off the wagon. They make mistakes. And then, you know, obviously when you're drunk or high, you make terrible decisions, the apex of bad decision-making. So as a writer, it was really fun for me to be able to write that conflict into the character, right? To be able to write a character who swings from one spectrum, end of the spectrum to the other and back again. And, and these wild kind of like moments of goodness mixed with moments of terrible, flawed decision-making. And so, yeah, it was, it was really fun to, to write her. And I certainly have known enough people who've struggled with, with addiction to, to have seen it up close and then thought about their behavior and, and, you know, be able to kind of write, write that into, into the character of Sam. It seemed such a key to have her be recovering as opposed to still in it, because when you're still in it, I don't know, it's easy for the reader to just be like, ugh. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I've ever read too, too many books where like, where the, the character's just a drunk. And so that makes them an unreliable narrator. And you, you know, and so you know that you're not supposed to trust anything they do or say. And, and so, so right. I didn't want to do that. I wanted her to have all the best intentions and be working towards her best self. Um 
as opposed to like girl on the train kind of thing, you know? Right. And she was the dominant voice. I think she takes up kind of the, I mean, it's, it's told from both of their points of view, but she's really the dominant voice. I actually, initially when I started working the book, thinking, thinking I was going to have it all from her point of view. And it wasn't until I got partway through the writing that I realized I really needed to write Ellie's point of view as well. Um, And so that's when I started working on her, her as a second voice. You know, the great thing about a second voice in a novel is, and we talk about this on the show a lot, is middles, middles of novels for mm-hmm. writers are, eh, they're hard, right? I mean, to yes. just keep up the balloon and <laughs> keep up the helium yes. balloon. Yes, 100%. <laughs> yeah. And so being able to introduce a new voice strikes me as a, a wonderful, I mean, in this novel kind of necessary because you really had to get the opposing point of view, but also just like another wonderful way to inject helium into the the balloon of the middle, right? Yes, 100%. You know, and I've done this in almost all of my books. <laughs> I've had, have had multi-point of view and you end a section and then you start a new section and you kind of end the one section with a moment of revelation or, or, or a twist or or some some kind of big epiphany moment that then allows you to kind of turn and start a new section and take a breath. So with this one, yeah, it was suddenly jumping into Ellie's point of view and giving new context and, and, and understanding to everything that's come before. You know, there's a like there's a there's a big moment of revelation at the at the end of the Sam section, and so then you go into Ellie and you get to understand how we got to that moment of of how everything led to that, and that is that is a great tool as a writer to be able to be able to do that for sure. Um, and also, you know, as a writer, I, I sometimes you know it's hard to just write one point of view for me because I'm always wanting like want to know what's going on in this other character's brain what are yes. they thinking what are they doing I want to get into their head too and and especially when you're writing books that do have a lot of secrets and lies and and suspense and and mystery built into them you know there's there the the tool of being able to go into other characters points of view to shed light on from a different perspective on on the the issues at hand is really is really useful because it allows you to to look at the problem that you've you've set out as a writer right the the, the crisis the conflict and see it from a whole different perspective that makes you understand it in a whole different way that's that's really exciting as as an as a writer yes so when you were writing this, were you writing it pretty chronologically where you understood Sam completely and then you turned to Ellie or did you did you kind of understand her point of view all the way along so that by the time you got to writing from her point of view, you had unlocked all of the reasons she <laughs> she made the also bad decision she made? <laughs> yes and no. I, I, you know, I knew what the story was. I knew, you know, without giving anything away. I knew what she had done and I, and I kind of understood her motivation for doing it, but really when I sat down to write it is when I really worked through it all. And it really, really became clear on her, her character and her motivations and, and what her, what her issues were. And instead of, you know, until you sit down and start writing them, it always feels very abstract, you know, and it's really once you get into their voice that you're able to go, oh yes, okay, I understand her. Oh, this is what pushes her. This is what moves her. This is what she's thinking about. This is what she's feeling. This is her anxiety. It's really hard for me to totally wrap my head around that until I'm actually writing in, in the character's voice. Do you ever allow yourself to I do this sometimes and it always screws me up or you're like, oh, I can't wait to write this scene. This is going to be such a great scene, even though it's out of order right now. And mm. then you write the scene because you can't help yourself. <laughs> <laughs> then you're like, where the hell does this scene go? <laughs> 
sometimes, but for the most part, I write pretty chronologically. I tend to write in a way that I like to read, which is a, what's going to happen next? You know, and I, and, you know, I'm not, a, as we know, the whole plotter versus pantser thing. I'm not a huge plotter. Um, I know roughly what's going to happen. Um, I know roughly the story, but I like to surprise myself as I'm writing. I like the characters to tell me their story as I go, because I feel like character is story, right? And until I really know the characters and what drives them, I don't know what they're going to do. And otherwise, it's just imposing decision on someone instead of letting their decisions come naturally from their own character, right? So for me, writing a book is really about developing these characters and like setting up their lives and they're putting them in these situations that I've already imagined and seeing what they do and getting often surprised by it and excited by it and like, oh, okay, well, what's going to happen now? So, so yeah, I, and that's the way I like to read too, is, is being surprised by the characters and not seeing it coming a million miles away, but suddenly being like, oh, that makes absolute sense by, by for what this, who this person is that I now know, um, yes. why they do what they do. Did either one of them ever pull you off your game to the point where you're like, wait, you know, we've lost the, <laughs> we've lost the threat. We've lost the plot. Um, no, I don't think so. No, no. Okay. We'll be right back with more from Janelle Brown and I'll be you in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips that may have inched you closer to your own publication, or if you just enjoy these behind-the-scenes discussions of how these books get made, this is your chance to support the show. Any amount helps us out. You can visit patreon.com slash writers on writing. Let's get back to it with Janelle Brown talking about I'll Be You. So the thing that unlocks Ellie is, I don't know how much to say here. So she, she finds her way into a, a little bit of a cult. Let's, we can yes. say that. Yeah, okay. Can, it's not okay. really. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Tell me a little bit about that research process. Cause I also feel like, man, that's such a, a long psychology of a, the people that are attracted to it. And then once you're, it's a slippery slope, which is really what I loved. I mean, I think we all know people, perhaps ourselves who have, you know, gone down the yoga wellness whatever it is oh it's a great spa weekend wait what is happening here <laughs> yeah. I don't think that's that uncommon actually no uh, and it's, it's 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 yeah I mean and that's how that's really how I came to this book was wanting to write about the slippery slope of a cult and how and and like the and the very modern cults I mean we're not talking about like you know David Koreshi kind of stuff we're talking about like the 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 more goopy cults the the ones that are self-help leaders and 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 retreats that look like wellness retreats and and you know the nexium of it all really because nexium was I assume everyone knows what nexium is but yeah. you know yeah. it was it was this self-help group that was full of you know very successful actresses and professionals and they're getting together and they're doing workshops together to talk about how big it's how you know to improve themselves and it's only along the way that it started to devolve into this like you know, very 
messed up relationship with the man who was running it and self-branding and the like they you know, gave up their secrets for for blackmail and they give all their money and you know went, it went very dark and so i you know i had kind of started I've, I've been obsessed with cults for a very long time. I first started learning about Nexium about what, three, four years ago. I was fascinated with it because it really did hit that kind of cross-section between cults and wellness that feels very contemporary and feels very like it hits close to home. I mean, having friends that got involved in groups, I'm like, what is that group? I'm not sure that group is so healthy for you, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, so writing the character of Ellie and being able to explore how someone goes down that rabbit hole and gets involved in something thinking they're going to improve themselves. They're going to improve their lives and ends up absolutely destroying their life instead. That was a really compelling story for me to write. And so being able to get into Ellie and and really look at her and say, why, why did she do this? And how did she do this? And and the slow kind of descent of, of that. There seems like a weird link between cults and Hollywood. I'm just thinking of like Scientology. There seems like so many. And there's a lot of money, obviously, in Mm -hmm. that community. But yeah, this this link between the cults and place. I mean, this is so grounded in Southern California. And I felt like if you lifted this whole story and plopped it in, you know, Minnesota or upstate New York or something, it just wouldn't work. Like it was like place really felt like another character Mm -hmm. in the book. And yeah, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because there's a lot of specific locations. The place this wellness retreat, in quotes, <laughs> is taking place is a very evocative, you know, specific place in my mind. There's some other, like Sam's apartment. I was just wondering, talk a little bit about bringing these places to life and if you were basing them on specific locations and kind of researching the spots that the novel takes place. Yeah. For me, place setting is is really important. It always has been. Um, you know, I'm I'm very much a California writer, and I've, I've lived here my whole life, and and I love the the diversity of the state and how the different parts of the state are like they're so radically different, and the lifestyle is different, the way people behave is different, and and you know, yeah, there's cross sections, obviously. Like you know, Berkeley is is not terribly far off from Ojai, but but yet they're also very different at the same time. Um, yeah. Berkeley is more crunchy. Ojai is more like Hollywood glam. Like, um, <laughs> right? You know. So I I really think about how the setting of the book influences the behavior of the people, and and I let in describing it and the heat and the sunshine versus you know a dark gray gloomy area like. What what is the fog? What is the impact of the fog emotionally versus the impact of the sun? You know, that kind of thing. So I'm always kind of contending with that in my books. And in this one, I knew I wanted to do a Southern California book. I knew cults in particular are very rooted in Southern California and, and wellness in particular is 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 down here. That that felt very um Southern California to me. And then, yeah, Ojai, you know, I've, I love Ojai. I've always wanted to set something there. And it just made sense to me that they would have a retreat on one of those, like, kind of like tucked off this because Ojai has that little cute little town. And then it just kind of spreads out into the hills and, and it has this long history of like, you know, meditation retreats and weird groups. And you have the Chumash Indians and there's so much kind of like, mysticism and spirituality there that it felt like 
that would be the absolute perfect place that that this retreat would be. And then, you know, I wrote this book during the pandemic. And obviously Santa Barbara is a big part of it. That's where she grew up and, and then Los Angeles. So I wrote this book during the pandemic and I couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> I couldn't travel, <laughs> right? Uh, so I was doing it all from memory. And I had spent a lot of time in Ojai and, you know, a certain some time in Santa Barbara, not as much. But, um, you know, I used to go in Ojai to writing retreats in Ojai quite a bit. So, you know, I was able to write most of it from memory. And then kind of as the as the pandemic restrictions started to lift and people started to travel again, my book had finished my book. And I was like, okay, now I really, I need to like do a, a trip. As I'm doing my revisions, I need to do a trip and drive up to Santa Barbara and drive up to Ojai and like make sure that my memories match. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. And I had to, I did have to like make a lot of changes where, you know, I was like things that I was describing when I actually went and drove them again. And I was like, oh, no, it's not quite the way I remembered it. Like the orange groves don't come first. They like come after this. And, you know, oh, yeah, there's the the kinds of houses I was describing in Santa Barbara were like not quite right. So I like... So I do do a lot of that where, uh, you know, I'll write something from emotional memory and then, but then also make sure that it matches and I'll go do research and kind of drive around and look at specific places and, and use this as inspiration for, for the settings in, in the book. It makes such a difference because I talked to, you know, a lot of people use Google Maps and they walk up and down yes. the, the road on online. Yep, I do that too. <laughs> which is good. Yeah, which is good. But I have to say there's no substitute for just like, getting out and walking the blocks and smelling the smells and you know, all yeah. that stuff. You're right. It does make a total difference. You can only walk down one of those blocks online for so long before you're like, eh, I get it. But it's not. Yeah, it is. It's not the same. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is your elegant, really elegant use of backstory, which I find is always a little tricky. So both girls, women, you know, they had these childhood memories and what it was like when they were growing up and their relationship with their mother and certain things that had happened to them back then that set the stage. But backstory is tricky because you can only delve into it for so long before you lose the forward momentum of what's going on in the present day. Yes. And, you know, I, I feel like these memories kind of have to, I, I think of them like on a clothes hanger where, you know, you can kind of drop down into a memory, but you got to get back up to the back up to the clothesline pretty quickly. And I was wondering if there are things you can say about that, these these wonderful dips into history for each of them, how long you allow yourself to spend back there, how much information you can convey before you get back to the forward momentum of the story, because you did that so many times and it was it was really nicely done. Thank you. Oh, you're going to hate this answer. It's intuitive. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. That's good. Um, you know, it's one of the things I don't, you know, I, I feel like I... I have kind of an in intuitive sense of momentum and when things are slowing down too much. And so, it even, and you know, I, I have had a lot of readers, especially readers who are expensive, expecting suspense, traditional suspense novels say that my books are slow burns and they are, um, especially in the beginning of my books, they tend to be a lot of character building and setting up of, of relationships. Um, and then things start to unspool and the momentum starts to like get faster and faster until you kind of uh, propulsive to the end. And that's because, you know, I, I'm constantly thinking about like, as I read and reread what I've written, I'm asking myself, like, am I getting bored as I read this? Am I feeling like it's getting slow? And if it is, I stop and I turn, right? And sometimes you just need a breath, right? So I, I tend to put 
these moments of flashback and at either at critical moments when I feel like we need a new understanding of the character. Like we need to get this, this insight into what is about to come. And so you take a breath, show this moment of, of backstory and then jump back into the, the regular story. And with backstory, it's really about just feeling out a scene or a day or, or, or some series of events that feel like they have an arc of their own. You know, they're a story in themselves that, that, that doesn't, that you can move aside from the, the A story and go into this B story and the backstory and, and be entertained on, in your own way in that story. Um, but then making sure you end it at just the right moment and go back to A story again so you know you don't lose the thread entirely. And again, yeah, that is a balance and it's hard to describe how you know when it's when it's right. It's just really kind of like feeling it. Probably yeah. a lot of that comes from reading a lot, you know? Yeah. I yes. feel like <laughs> reading a lot gives you the best education on how to be a writer. And yeah, maybe you just kind of, you know, you hone that skill of intuition of what feels right and when it feels right. And yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of layers of time in here. I mean, there's when they're really little, they have actually, I should also mention at the beginning of each section, there's three sections in the book, two told from Sam's point of view one and three, and then two told from Ellie's point of view. And at the beginning of each of those sections, it's in italics for a couple of pages where they, you know, are kind of pontificating on really the early, early parts of their almost babyhood, right? When they started playing this game of, you know, I'll pretend I'm you and and back when it's easier to kind of shape shift into the other person because they haven't really developed their personalities yet. And they can do that a little easier than they, they could do it when they were adults when they still did. But yeah, that's a, that's a really nice way to kind of establish, okay, here's my take on what happened when we were little kids. And, and here's the other person's take on, on what happened. And their voices were more similar in those sections as well. And I did that intentionally because those were kind of the moments of, for me, those were the the moments where they, they shared the most, where they both were in there together and had the most similarity of, of, of sense of self um, in, in those sections. So I made their voices a little bit different. So you could kind of discern between the two of them, but, but the voice was, was, was very different from the rest of the book. And it was kind of almost the collective we voice, if it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the twin, the twin voice, um, yes. which was, which was, was an interest was, that was actually a, a writing exercise that I had, had, had worked on. And I'm like, actually this, this does need to go in the book. It had been something I was just kind of doing as a trying to get into their heads at the moment. I'm like, actually, this is going to go in. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I, are there other examples of you setting out like a little challenge for yourself or a little exercise that turned into something useful? Yeah, you know, in pretty things, like I, I don't know if you, if people have read this, but it's, you know, it's point of view, two different characters, they're one is a con artist and one is an heiress slash internet influencer who is her target. Yeah. And it goes back and forth between them. And at what there's some big twists, big twists and big turns. And I'm don't really give anything away, but there's one, there's a there's a scene I wrote 
where I was, you know, trying to figure out what to do when with this character, uh, with a character of the the the, the conned woman, um, the Vanessa, the the, the heiress, yeah. to how to make her. I was kind of didn't want her to be boring, and I was feeling that she was getting boring as I was writing her. So one day I sat down at this exercise, and I just started writing like her, the idea of her waking up and realizing she's married. And I wasn't actually planning on writing it for the book. It was just kind of like, what happens if I do this? And it opened up a whole new insight into her and was such a fun thing to write. And it had so much vibrancy that I was like, oh, okay, I guess I I will put this in. And by doing that, it then opened up a whole new window into her. And I actually went back and started changing her voice a little bit more to match that scene that I'd written. I love that. Barbara came up with an exercise for our patrons the other day, which was to take a character who's you and think of something you would absolutely never do, a, a line mm-hmm. you would never cross. And then, mm-hmm. you know, you you cross it. And I was thinking of that in this book, too. I don't think it gives too much away to say, because you were talking about these cults sort of blackmailing people for things. And there's just like this list that has nothing to do with these characters of things people have done lines they've crossed that you'd think I'd never cross. And they're so delicious. You know, it's just fun to think of those things of what would you absolutely never allow yourself to do and then play with them. And and still the characters are empathetic. You know, we understand why they made those decisions, even if they're terrible decisions. But coming up with terrible decisions, I think, is just fun. <laughs> oh, that's, for me, that's the best part of writing. Like, I love writing characters that that do stupid things right. <laughs> and, right. and there's fallout and then they're scrambling trying to fix it and for me what makes characters interesting are, are the bad decisions that they make I mean if everyone makes good decisions that's kind of boring right Very boring yes. yeah Very so boring. for me you know complicated characters who make bad decisions and my job as an author is to humanize them and to make our, our my readers understand why they made the decision that they made even if it's a bad one you know, I get I get asked a lot of the, you know, the questions about likability and writing unlikable characters and things like that. And I don't really think about it that way, that I'm writing unlikable characters. I'm thinking about it as I'm writing complicated characters, mostly women, who who make bad choices. And 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 my job is really just to to elucidate why. Yeah. There's a cast of minor characters in here, some some more major minor characters than others, like the girl's mother. Her dad is kind of more minor than the mom, Ellie's husband. And I was wondering, working with those characters, how much you force yourself to know about them and their psychology, especially kind of those second tier writers like the mom and Ellie's husband who who also need kind of their own motivations and reasons for doing things. How much work do you spend on them? Or, or is that, again, kind of an intuitive thing that they kind of fall into place as the story unfolds? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I feel like they start off as the characters I'm not really thinking about as much. They're there to serve a purpose in the, in the very beginning, right? I'm like, I'm not sitting down thinking about them the way I'm thinking about Ellie and Sam. But then as I start writing the story and they are behaving, doing things that impact the characters, I really do start getting into the psychology. Um, I really need to know why they're doing what they're doing. I mean, the mother, the mother... 
of these twins is a really complicated character. I mean, she's a stage mom who takes to move her kids to, to LA so that they can become actresses, but is also like willfully blind to all their behavior, like pretends she doesn't see the things that she doesn't want to see, like her daughter's addiction. And, and get, you know, is also has this kind of dabbling in spirituality and, you know, crystals and transcendental meditation and, you know, and so she, so she was kind of a wonderfully complex character to write and to think about why she does the way she does and what she does. And, and similarly with, um, with Ellie's husband and their, you know, their marriage is strained because of, of infertility and, and thinking about why, how he's going to react as he sees his wife kind of go down this rabbit hole with this group and and their own struggles with fertility. And, you know, he had to have his own emotional motivation. Otherwise, he's just a cartoon. And I don't want to write cartoons. I want all of my characters to feel emotionally complex and real and interesting. And it's like you might not agree with what they're doing, but you kind of understand why they're doing it. And then the risk is just going down the rabbit hole of their story. That's what I'm saying. Yes, <laughs> yes exactly. <laughs> Here's a separate book over here about these yes. two. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. Especially the mother. I mean, you know, daughters are so informed by their mother. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you, you really have to have a, a grasp on who she was to, to have a grasp on who on who they were. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, in our last few minutes together, so you, you've been in this industry a long time, 30, yeah. you know, 30 years, and there's obviously a lot of changes going on in the industry and changes as we were talking about all of these literary festivals are kind of falling away after the pandemic and the pandemic has changed so much and AI is changing so much. I was just wondering if, if you have advice for people just getting into the industry, because I assume that what you've had to do in terms of marketing platform, keeping your own flame alive is different now than it maybe it was 30 years ago when publishers were much more in charge of that. Any insights you can give about this changing industry and advice for people getting into it would be great to hear. Oh man, that's a hard question. I mean, the advice from the beginning is certainly is hasn't changed, which is the writing is, is I don't think the process of writing has or should be any different than ever was you write a great book um don't write something that you think is going to be make you famous on tiktok or that is similar to a colleen hoover book because you know <laughs> right. copies because you know derivativeness is is you know they readers sniff that out a mile away and and i don't think that it ever behooves anybody so you know in that sense looking at social media and how it's shaped the literary world can be very dangerous because it can be very tempting to to to, to do things that you shouldn't do. But I think the what the, where the power of it is, and what I certainly have felt over the last decade, is connection with readers is so much stronger now. You're able to really like, you know, readers follow me on Instagram and they DM me and I DM them back and I see what they're saying about my books and they get to like live vicariously, you know, the excitement of my life, which is mostly involves driving my kids to school and baking cookies. So you know, <laughs> they yes. get to see that if they want to. Um, and, but, and I, you know, end up having this, getting to see kind of more intimately how people react to my books, you know, the things that people post to the people, things people say, it's, it's been really interesting. And, and, you know, the danger of course, is you spend too much, pay too much attention and then, change your books accordingly when I think that you really just need to write what you want to write and not worry too much about 
what readers are going to think because, you know, that's, that's, that's a rabbit hole. You just don't want to go down. So yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's kind of my main insight is, is, is be wary, but, but use social media for what it can be good for. But yeah, yeah I don't think I've changed the way I write. I don't know that I've approached anything very differently other than just despairing over. <laughs> yes. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the same. Yes. Have you been with the same agent and publisher all the way through? I have. Um, I've been, I have the same agent since my first book and I've been with Random House the whole time. Um, I changed imprints. My my first two books were Spiegel and Grau, which was an imprint at Random House that shut down. And so then I moved to Random, Random House, Little Random. Okay. So um, yeah, but I've had the same team the whole time. Okay. And you have a writing space. I feel like mm-hmm. I read that someplace where you, you go with the other writer, you have a little office somewhere. Yeah, um, just down the hill from from my house, uh, we have a an office space in, in a like kind of an old mid century building, and and we cram like fifteen writers in, in in this cup in this little warren of rooms that we have, um, and it's been great. You know, we have all kinds of writers. We have novelists and memoirists and screenwriters and. Uh, some essayists we have you know and it's it's a poet and it's just great to have a space to go in every day get out of your your house and out of your head and be around other writers you're known as the one who has your head down and stacks of books and really is getting stuff done during the pandemic while everybody else was running around going I don't know what we're doing (laughs) (laughs) is that how I come across I I I don't know I read that somewhere yeah (laughs) somebody was saying how impressed they were with your your grit and ability to get get stuff done that year it was like a fever dream I honestly don't know how I wrote a book that year but I think you know what it was I had nothing else to do I didn't have anything I, I mean my kids were home all the time we didn't go anywhere we didn't have any social plans we didn't I wasn't driving them to dance classes or going to their football games or you know having a family makes mm-hmm. takes a lot of time and for that year like we were just home they were in school and then they were like doing things and I was writing and I could write all day long because there's nothing else to do. So yes. I did, I did get a lot done that year. And do you have readers? Uh, does that group produce readers for anything? Do you share work or, or is it just really you and your agent? Or I you do and your actually have a writer's group that started up during the pandemic, not, not out of my writer's space. And um, I've had, I've had multiple writer's groups over the years, but um, the one I'm in now is a virtual kind of a virtual writer's group that my uh, a colleague of mine, we have the same agent, Danielle Trussoni, um, who has a great book coming out called The Puzzle Master. Um, she decided to start a writers group of writers who kind of cross genre, who are like literary suspense, literary horror, literary mystery, like they people who kind of write across uh, genre and, and, and literary. And it's been really gratifying. Um, there's like five of us, and we get on Zoom and and, and read each other's works and, and give each other feedback. So. I love that community. Well, we can follow you online. You have a great website and you've got two books being turned into screen productions. I don't know. Do you have any involvement with that or is that just they sell? Yeah, and... yeah um, I'm involved in, in both projects as, as an EP. I did write uh, a pilot of Pretty Things for Amazon when it was first optioned, but we just pivoted and now have a new producer. So I'm not going to be okay. writing the pilot anymore. But yeah, I'm definitely involved in both. And, and it's been really exciting to, to, to see them in development. But, you know, it is, it is Hollywood. Nothing is anything in, until it's something, as I like to say. Until you're actually on set watching them, you know, <laughs> say action, you never believe that anything's ever going to happen. So, 
it's very meta with this latest book, right? You're yes. <laughs> you're in Hollywood writing about Hollywood. Hollywood, exactly, exactly. And we can follow you on Instagram. That's mm-hmm. where you. Yes, good, good. I'm very active on Instagram. I'm I'm not so active on on the other platforms anymore. Um, Facebook was too much noise, and and Twitter is, you know, <laughs> what Twitter yes. is. Yes. Yes. But I'm yeah, I'm Janelle Brownie, i.e. Um, on 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 uh, on Instagram. <laughs> Going back to the baking, I love it. That's great. I know, which is funny. Why I don't I, I did, picked that that name like 16 years ago when I first got on Instagram, not really realizing it was going to be a professional platform for myself. And <laughs> I just stuck with it. So, and prescient with all the baking that I know you got to do during the pandemic. So that's yes, great. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> well, Janelle Brown, congratulations again on all of it, and uh, this was great. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Really, really fun conversation. So, thank you. That was Janelle Brown. The book is I'll Be You. It's out and available now and published by Random House. In addition to our Patreon page, you can always visit our websites. Barbara's is penonfire.com. Mine is Marie Stone, two R's in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.